Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Rabbi Claudia Greiman. Rabbi Claudia is the first Chilean born woman to be ordained to the rabbinate. The daughter of Angel Kreiman Brill, Chief Rabbi of Chile, Rabbi Claudia grew up in Santiago under the repressive environment of a dictatorship, inspiring her vision for social justice from a young age. After her graduation from high school, she moved to Argentina and there she began to engage deeply with Judaism, both as a learner and as a teacher. The death of her mother and 84 others in a 1994 terrorist attack on the Asociación Mutual Israelita Argentina, AMIA bombing in Buenos Aires, led her to honor her mother's legacy. She moved to Israel in 1996, made Aliyah, studied at the Schechter Institute of Jewish Studies, and was ordained in Jerusalem in 2002 with a firm commitment to social justice and Torah. Today, as the first woman senior rabbi of Temple Beth Zion in Brookline, Massachusetts, Rabbi Claudia continues to inspire and energize her community through joyful prayer and dynamic and purposeful leadership. Bienvenida, Rabbi Claudia. It's great to be here with you. I feel so honored to be able to sit down with you today. And I just want to begin by saying thank you. I've never, I don't think I've ever read a bio so complex and yet beautiful. So I'd love to give you the opportunity to share with us a little bit more. And perhaps this also being a wonderful opportunity for you to share some of your own family's migration history and your own migration patterns. I'm a rabbi living in Boston and actually in Brookline, Massachusetts, in the Boston area. I've been here in the United States for over 15 years now, but I'm originally born in Chile, in Santiago, Chile. I lived also in Argentina and after Argentina moved to Israel and from Israel here. Though I grew up in Chile, my family uh, comes from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. My grandparents from my mother's side, came to uh, South America, to Argentina, and to Uruguay during uh, the Shoah, during the Second World War, knowing each other in Poland first, and then meeting back again in South America, in Buenos Aires, and Montevideo, and starting a family there. And my father's family, from his mom's side, they came from Russia, the beginning of the century before that, to Buenos Aires. My my grandfather's side, uh, from my father's uh, they came to Argentina with the gauchos judíos, as known the Jewish gauchos, to settle different places, different communities, and live there as as these scout gauchos, or as in English we call them cowboys. Eventually, my grandfather going to to Buenos Aires uh, to meet a Jewish girl so he could get married, and, and my father being born. But my parents both originally from Buenos Aires. They met in Argentina, and they went to Chile uh, for work for my father, uh, who was a rabbi, the first ordained of the Seminario Rabinico Latinoamericano in Buenos Aires, the rabbinic seminary in Buenos Aires. So that's kind of where we all come from. But it's always interesting to think that my grandfather was four generations Argentinian. I love that you just brought in the Jewish gauchos. For those that don't know, Jewish gauchos were Jewish immigrants who settled in the fertile regions, the inner regions of Argentina, in agricultural colonies established by the Jewish Colonization Association. And that association was established by Baron Maurice de Hirsch, who was a Jewish-French industrialist who amassed a fortune building railroads in Russia and really believed that the future of the Jewish people was in the new world. This might be the first time that people are hearing about Jewish gauchos. So Rabbi Claudia, 
I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit more about what it's like to be someone who comes from a lineage of Jewish gauchos. Yeah, I actually visited uh, once the town Dominguez where my, my grandfather, Naum Kreiman, uh, grew up. It was very interesting. And there are many of these towns in that area in, in Argentina. And in a regular quote-unquote town, you'll have also the church there. In these towns, in the middle of them, there's a synagogue. And these uh, this places were settled by Jews who came escaping pogroms in Russia to Argentina. And they settled there and lived their full lives there. I believe that now there is very little uh, Jewish community. There is a museum that really is encapsulates and, and tells the story of the Jews of that area. But it was very profound to visit that and see that and visit the synagogue and then go to the cemetery where there's this Jewish cemetery where uh, my great-grandfather is buried and many others in my family. And this is their full Jewish life happening in these small towns in Argentina. Thank you for that history. And also Argentina has the largest Jewish community in all of Latin America. And a big part of that has to do with the fact that there were settlers, Jewish settlers, as early as the mid-19th century, making a life for themselves in these agrarian communities. So migration didn't just take place after World War I or World War II. And so you just said you're Argentinian. You've got the history from both your parents who made their way from the old world to the new world and settled there. But you're born in Chile. So could you give us a little bit more history as to what, what events led your family to move to Chile? My father uh, was, the, as I said, he was the first ordain of the seminario in Buenos Aires, which was founded by Rabbi Marshall T. Meyer, who uh, came from the United States to Argentina and started the first liberal, progressive, conservative movement seminary in Buenos Aires. And my father was a student when he was ordained, or even before he was ordained, he was flying for weekends to Chile to help with services. Uh, all the rabbis were either German or Yiddish speaking. And there was uh, some also uh, rabbis or, or communities coming from Sephardi community, but most of the, the central communities were Ashkenazi communities and they did not speak Spanish. The rabbis, they were from the old country. And uh, my father was this first uh, young 20-something-year-old semin seminarian sent to just lead services on the weekends. And I even have at home, someone gave me as a present, a poster of the first high holidays announced with sermons in Spanish by this new uh, rabbinical student. Uh, eventually, after my parents got married, they moved to Chile. They in in the middle, they they were rab my father was a rabbi in Colombia, in Barranquilla. He was in Brazil for a little time too, but ended up uh, being in Chile and really helping the Jewish community in in Chile to thrive. And I was born in seventy four, so one year after. The, the dictatorship in Pinochet took power in Chile. And during that time, he uh, did a lot of work with the Vicaria de la Solidaridad, which was this uh, interfaith uh, alliance uh, working for human rights during the dictatorship. I want to bring in some history for folks who might not know what we mean when we talk about la dictadura in Chile or the dictatorship in Chile. Uh, but the dictatorship in Chile was a right-wing authoritarian military dictatorship that ruled within the country for 17 years. So between 1973 and 1990, the dictatorship was established after the government of Salvador Allende was overthrown in a US-backed coup d'etat in 1973. 
And during this time, the country was ruled by a military junta headed by General Augusto Pinochet. And the dictatorship presented itself as a national reconstruction, and the coup was the result of multiple forces, including pressure from certain political parties, union strikes, and other domestic unrest, as well as international factors. The regime of Augusto Pinochet was characterized by the systemic suppression of political parties and the persecution of dissidents to an extent unprecedented in the history of Chile. So overall, the regime left over 3,000 dead or missing tortured tens of thousands of prisoners and drove an estimated 200,000 Chileans into exile. If you could bring in some some insight as to what your experience was like, do you remember specific pieces? Do you remember being told to say certain things or not to say certain things? And how did growing up in a dictatorship inspire you to be the person that you are today? As, As a kid, I have memories of both being told to be very careful of what you say and what you don't say. I also have memories of being in the back of our house with uh, pots and pans, making a lot of noise as a, as a sign against the dictatorship, but also knowing that we had a curfew, a toque de queda, and really the curfew was dangerous. Like, if you are outside, you could die. Like, this was, there was serious stuff. The message was clear. And I also knew, and I also learned later on in life about groups that were working around human rights and helping people to escape the, the dictatorship and people that lost their loved ones and disappear. Now, let me recognize very much that not all the Jewish community was against the dictatorship. Actually, a very large part if not most of the Jewish community, it was politically more connected to, to Pinochet and to the government because they were against uh, the communist uh, government of Allende. And I left Chile. One of the reasons is because many times I felt uncomfortable with a mainstream Jewish community who will be much more right-wing politics and into issues that are supportive of the dictatorship. But not everybody, and I do know of people that in the Jewish community, and that included my father at that time, at least, that he supported and helped and helped people escape the country. For me, very much this is what has shaped a lot of my rabbinate and my work. So it's clear that rabbinic service and faith leadership runs in the family. And I think it's important to note that women still make up a small portion of the world's total rabbinate. And it's important to note that because it's still fairly new in a lot of places, the idea of women serving in the rabbinate. And so I'm curious to know a little bit about your experience in deciding to take that route And also, kind of if you could share with us some of the obstacles that you experienced in doing so. When I grew up as a daughter of a rabbi and in the Jewish community in Chile, I already wanted to be a rabbi as a little kid. But it was a joke. And I did not know any woman rabbi. And I didn't even know that they were possible and existed. I even had a picture of myself when I was five years old, dress up as a rabbi for some dress up party, but I was dressed up as a man. I was dressed up as my dad with a beard, with his glasses. And for many years, I thought I would work in the Jewish world and the Jewish community, but always thought like being a rabbi would not be a possibility. 
And let's recognize that that Latin American societies are very traditional-ish. Maybe Argentina less, but Chile definitely, and Peru for sure too. These notions were very, very strange and, and not possible. Feminism was a bad word. Being loud, which I have always been and I will always be, was a bad thing. You're speaking too loud. You're always saying what you believe. And growing up with that was clear that this is not a possibility. And it is not until I moved to Israel and I first met some women rabbis who are like me and they were my age and they were living meaningful Jewish lives. And where I also found myself in communities where values of egalitarianism were a very deep in community, not only around Jewish practice, uh, you know, can women read from the Torah? Can women do this or that? But also in the way of life. And it was not an easy journey because with all the good things of coming up from my family, I grew up in a traditionally South American Latino community. The, the expectation of most of the people of my friends was once you finish high school, you choose a career, but then you find a husband and you move and marry them and they'll make much more money than you. And you'll see if you uh, if it's worth for you to keep your job because your job is to raise your children. And, and I left it on that and I left it happily. <laughs> and then my commitment to study and to learn and to live a Jewish life and to become a rabbi became at the center of my of my vision of life. Thank you. And I know that a lot of women listening are also wondering and, and dreaming of becoming rabbis. And so I think it's really wonderful to have women like yourself showing that it's possible and showing us that despite adversity, if it's our dream, you know, it's not a dream, we can make it happen. So I want to transition to something that's a little bit heavier. And that's uh, the story of your mom. And I mentioned it in your bio that your mother was one of the 85 people killed during the Amiya bombing. And the Amiya bombing was a suicide van bomb attack on the Amiya, also known as the JCC in Buenos Aires, on July 18th, 1994. That suicide van bomb killed 85 people and injured hundreds. The bombing is not only Argentina's deadliest terrorist attack to date, it is also the deadliest terrorist attack on a Jewish community in Latin America. But it wasn't just a bombing. It was the bombing that took your mom's life. And I wanna be able to honor her memory and her story. And I wanna invite you to share with us as much as you can, as much as you want, so that the people that are listening can get an insider's take on what actually took place within a family what actually took place within a home and what that's meant for you. I appreciate your question, how you frame it very much. My mom, Julia Susana volinsky Kreiman, or Susie, as everybody knew her, was one of the 85 people that was killed in the bombing in the AMIA in 1994. She was the director of the Bolsa de Trabajo, which is the where people go and offer jobs and the place that people get jobs in the Jewish community, uh, social services, as she was a, a social worker. She left that morning to work and never came back home. I didn't see her that morning. It was July, which is winter vacation. I was in, it was in college. I was in university. I studied at the University of Buenos Aires then. 
and I was on vacation, so I slept late. Actually, I had some friends visiting. Two minutes before ten, after the bombing happened, I got a phone call from a friend uh, who lived um, on the same street with us there, the three blocks from the Amia, and I answered the phone, and she said, and I can still hear her voice, Claudia volaron la Amia, Claudia de bomb the Amia. Of course, took a few moments to try to understand the meaning of those words. You know, we're in pajamas, my sisters were there, friends were there. It was like chaotic and tried to call the AMIA. There was no answer. You know, this is before cell phones. And I called, uh, called our father who was working at the seminary in Buenos Aires and he couldn't, he was not available to answer and it was clearly something was going on. And friend uh, called and said, I'm picking you up. I'll just come on a taxi and pick you up and I'll bring you there and, and we'll meet your dad and we'll find your mom. And uh, that's what we did. She came, picked us up and took a taxi that brought us as close as possible. It was very hard to get close. It was uh, very full, very packed ambulances, some people and the streets and, and a building that has uh, almost fully fallen we found my dad at some point. We started to find people that we know. There's a lot of uncertainty and unknown trying to figure out what was happening. They sent families and friends to another building of the Jewish community in the street of Ayacucho, just two streets away, for us to gather there where they were reading lists of names of people that they were sending to hospitals. And I remember going with, with a friend, um, to, to some hospitals to check to see if my mom was there and really trying to figure out what's next. Next was, uh, we spent seven days waiting. We moved into this building um, where uh, people fed us and cared for us. And my grandparents, the ones that left Europe to go to uh, Argentina to save themselves from the Shah where all their family members died. They flew from Israel to wait for my mom Every day was a day of less hope, and at the same time, the hope was going away. And bombing was Monday morning. Um, my mom's body was found on Sunday afternoon, and there my mom the next day. I have a lot of stories of that week, uh, moments of desperation, and also moments of a lot of love and hope and community. And life totally changed for all of us. I think it changed for the Jewish community in Buenos Aires, and of course it changed fully uh, for us as a family. I, I think so many memories and images I have, I think that one of the hardest is my grandmother wailing as she buried her daughter, but I still can hear her wailing and crying over um, my mom's grave in Yiddish. After we sat Shiva, we had to figure out what's next. The last day of the Shiva, uh, the old friend of ours, the students of my parents, were getting married. And we decided to go just to the Chupa, and then we left before the party. We were still mourners, but they made a little recognition of my mom. And I remember that wedding being a sign of like, okay, Life keeps going, love keeps going, and that's all that we can do. And then a few days later, I got a phone call from my boss saying, look, I'm, I'll find a, a sub for you. You don't have to come back to work. It's totally fine. Just take your time to come back. And I said, no, I'm coming back. This is what I want to do. This is the school, actually, that my mom founded. I had a choice at that time to go into a place of anger and despair. And believe me, I have moments of anger and I have moments of despair all the time. 
I could have chosen that to be a path of life and I decided that I would actually choose uh, to keep going, to keep teaching, to keep living a joyful, colorful, fun, loving life. And, and I stayed in Argentina studying and then I moved to Israel. Many years later, I'm here as a rabbi and living a life that I think is a commitment to this tragedy that things like this would not happen again. Thank you, Rabbi. And we lift up the memory of your mother, Susi Greiman, and the lives of the 84 others lost to the senseless terrorist attack. And we look forward to honoring them in the years to come so that people don't forget what happened. I, I want to just name that what you shared is so deeply personal and you've led us into something that has inevitably, as you mentioned, shaped your life. I'd love to give you the opportunity and perhaps it's best to do it in Spanish to share with us, if, you, if you're open to it, how it is that you keep your mother's memory alive today within your work, uh, within your family. Y te voy a hacer la pregunta en español. Me encantaría que nos cuentes cómo es que mantienes la memoria de tu mami, Susie Kreiman, en tu vida, en tu trabajo, en tu familia. ¿Cómo es que la mantienes viva? Todos estos años después. Primero voy a decir que mi mamá tenía 48 años cuando murió. Y yo cumplí recién 47 el mes pasado. Yo tenía 20 cuando ella murió. Y estaba pensando mucho en que este es mi último año de vida que voy a ser más chica que mi mamá. Mis hijas son mucho más chicas de lo que yo era cuando mi mamá tenía 48 años. Tengo una hija de 12, que se llama Alma, y una hija de seis que se llama Ariel y una de las cosas que hago para recordar a mi mamá es contarles a mis hijas de mi mamá mucho eh, la abuelita Susi como la llamamos y en mi día a día el recuerdo de mi mamá es atrás de mi trabajo es en mi trabajo como educadora como rabina para ser honesta tengo pocos recuerdos de mi mamá vida es decir tenía 20 años y tengo algunas historias tengo historias de chiquitita de vacaciones, del, del colegio, pero lamentablemente la historia del atentado tomó tanto lugar en mi memoria y en mi trauma en que todo lo anterior al atentado es, es muy... Me, me es difícil recordarlo. Entonces, trato ahora, cuando fue el último eh, 18 de julio, pasamos el día mirando fotos de mi mamá, tengo unos videos de cuando nos fuimos de vacaciones, cuando, teníamos 16, cuando yo tenía 16 años. Pero me pone muy triste que no recuerdo tanto. Y lo único que puedo hacer es, eh, lo que recuerdo, to lift it up, criar a mis hijas con lo mejor que puedo, con los valores que me son importantes. Muchas gracias, Rabbi Claudia. Ha sido un honor estar contigo. It's been an honor to be able to sit here and to be here with you and to listen to your story of, there's been so much, you know, you grew up in the dictatorship, uh, you lost your mom in a terrorist attack, and yet you are so hopeful and you have this conviction for, for peace and for justice. And you really are just a beacon of hope for our community. And I just really want to lift you up and say, thank you. We look forward to continuing to be in community with you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really uh, delightful. Gracias, Rabbi Claudia. 
Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore, it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners, thank you for your love and encouragement. We are thrilled to be back for a second season, and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your support. New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jutina.org. Until next time, ciao!